0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So here we are almost at the winter solstice in a day or two, the coldest, darkest part of the year. Don't feel too sorry for us here in California, but most parts of the country, it's, uh, it's cold and dark. There's a winter kind of wisdom The basic fact that everything that comes into being passes away, it's a time of transition, the old is ending, something new might be beginning but it isn't apparent yet. It has a simplicity, everything is stripped to its barest essentials. So every spiritual path has times when it's a journey through the dark, a journey into the unknown and through the underworld to discover aspects of our being that maybe we haven't seen and not acknowledged. And it's often the first hint of some kind of a, a winter or a fall, a clue that things are ending that starts people looking for a spiritual path. Maybe it's the loss of someone you love or your own health or, or just a sense of that the way you've been doing things isn't fulfilling anymore. I've been having a very difficult passage through such a phase for the last few years. Um, part of it's maybe facing up to old age and feeling exposed as my parents get old and die, and there's been some unexpected deaths of young people in my family the last couple of years. I think for myself, I'm feeling the loss of a youthful illusion that there are endless possibilities for me, you know, that I can be anything, that I can do anything. It's the difficulty of accepting limitations and letting go of unrealistic ideals, settling down to the fact that it's just things are the way they are and I am who I am and it's not going to be that dramatic a change. Um, so when we find ourselves facing up to one of these winters in our experience, where do we turn? Is there a refuge from this kind of suffering? And if so, how do we find it? You probably all know the story of the Buddha before he became the Buddha, when he was a prince, Prince Siddhartha, a very spoiled prince, had everything he wanted. And then one day he managed to see someone who was sick and then someone who was old and finally a dead body. And then around the same time, he saw a a monastic renunciate walking by at peace with all this. And it, it startled him into thinking, set him on what's called the noble search. And he started thinking, how can I find refuge in things that change, things that get old and die? Is there some way that I can find peace of mind in something that doesn't die? Um, so he, he conducted this noble search and he did find a way and he began teaching and gathering a Sangha of disciples who also found a way to freedom. And then from then on, all the sutras are filled with accounts of people that come to meet the Buddha or his disciples and they hear the teachings and they declare that henceforth they're going to refuge to what's called the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. So here we are 2,500 years later, still suffering, still getting old, still getting sick, still not satisfied with being princes and princesses here in Silicon Valley. So if you're here, you're at least beginning to face up to these facts of life and beginning to check out what the Buddha had to say about it. It's really a lifelong process of finding what it means to take refuge in what's called the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Its means to reorient our whole lives and our whole way of understanding things in light of the Buddha's analysis of what causes suffering and the potential to find an end of it. One of my favorite Buddhist writers is called Nyanaponika Tara. He's a, uh, I suppose he's dead now, but he was a monk in the Theravadan tradition in Sri Lanka and he's written some wonderful essays and he has one on on, fi- on going for refuge. And He sees it as being a several stage process. And first of all, we might come with an emotional sense of faith in the Dharma. Maybe we've read some books and we've heard about it and it sounds good. And we think, well, yes, this is something I'm going to look into. So I know I spent many years reading about it and I found a sort of refuge in the ideas of it. The idea that there was a way out. And I I thought about it a lot, and it it was pleasant thoughts, and I was encouraged by these pleasant thoughts. And I felt that I was, in fact, I started thinking of myself as a Buddhist, and I I started listening to talks. And that's, that's sort of the first stage of beginning to take refuge in this. But then there's a deepening process where it's not only the faith and the inspiration, but it moves into really deeper understanding and finally a matter of will. You need to put your will into it. So, the next stage is where you really you 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 allow yourself to open up to be instructed and that that was a significant turning for me because i i'm 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 a little arrogant and I tend to think that oh, I know it you know I read it all, I know that and and I really didn't want to do the hard work of looking at myself and opening up my defenses and really allowing myself to open to the point of, you know how others see me. So it, it was a deeper stage of, of refuge that I'm still opening to, to open to, to, to the humility really, to bring to give yourself to a teacher, commit yourself to letting them open you up and show you some of the sides of yourself that you really don't want to see. Um, and then another stage beyond that is really finding the will to put this into practice throughout every moment of our lives. I went through another phase where I, I went to the retreats and I would go to retreats or I would come here but then I was still working and busy and it was something that was just a part of my life. And when I got home from retreat, well that was nice and now, you know, back to work. And a few years ago, it I, I got so I couldn't really go to retreats anymore and it occurred to me that this is it, you know, this has to be something that I do every minute of my life. And so I feel like it's a much deeper refuge where something has turned around to where the practice is my life and everything else. It's not a question of how to integrate the practice into my life, it's a question of that is my life and how does everything in my life that happens inform my understanding of the practice. And then finally, there's a phase of totally surrendering our separate self into harmony of the way things are. Um, can't say that I know much about that phase. So I <laughs> it's it's uh, the more we can manage to do this, though, the more peace and happiness we can find. So the ultimate meaning of refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha is to attain the complete extinction of greed, hatred and delusion. That's the definition of full enlightenment. But fortunately, I found that there are many more accessible forms of refuge in the Triple Gem along the way, far short of any kind of enlightenment or any kind of permanent enlightenment. So what does refuge in the Buddha mean? In our tradition, it really refers to the, the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, this man who lived 500, 400 B.C. or so, this extraordinary person, that we would not be here if it were not for that one person and his, his um, search for peace of mind. And it's a great good fortune that there was this person who not only discovered how to completely free himself from suffering, but he managed not to get crucified right away or anything. He lived for another 40 years and he taught people for 40 years how to do this. And he had many, many disciples who came to the full level of full realization. So he was able to hone his way of explaining this and his understanding of it and a whole uh, array of skillful means that works for different kinds of people. And it's just, it's just such a rich tradition. I've been inspired. I've been taking the sutta class. I don't know if any of you are taking that. Gil's giving a class on Fridays once a month where we study the Sutras, And I feel like I've really come closer to the Buddha just by reading the suttas and, and following his search. It's so much fun to see him going through it. And there are all these passages where he says, well, how about if I do this? And how about if I do that? And how if I try this? And I tried that and that didn't work. And then I tried that. And so you can really get a sense of his process and going through this and the active kind of engagement that's needed to to discover a way out. So as an engineer myself, I really appreciate the uniqueness of this spiritual genius. He seems to have had the kind of systematizing mind that led him to express his discovery, not so much as poetry, but more like a technical manual for how to do it yourself. So I love the poetry of the other traditions, but I also appreciate the The technical writer in him (laughs) or the technical speaker that really wanted to get in there and understand how the mind works. Another way to understand refuge in the Buddha is not not so much in that one person, but in that person as an archetype that we all have within us. The Buddha himself said that he had rediscovered an ancient path. He wasn't claiming that he invented it. And I think this points to the fact that it's it's in a way a path through the human mind, through the human potential, that is something that is potential in each one of us. There seems to come a point at which the price that we're paying in stress and wasted energy for repressing aspects of ourselves and for denying the reality of death and impermanence and change is too great. And there's something starts to crack and it's like maybe a, a, a flower or a seed bursting open. I remember something that Jack Kornfield quoted at the first day long retreat I ever went to. It said that when the risk of not blooming is greater than the risk of blooming, then we begin to open up. So I find that this is helpful when I don't like to face the things that are coming up, that it is a natural process and that it's my own inner Buddha that's waking up. There's another aspect of the Buddha's story that's really helpful to me as the process goes poking around in the attics and basements of things I don't want to look at. And that is the story of his night of facing the armies of Mara. Mara is the personification of the devil or temptation, the temptation not to wake up in Buddhism. And in the story of the Buddha, he did this all in one night, which is, you know, good for him. But he faced he faced the endless armies of Mara of lust and anger and all these difficult emotions coming at him personified as an attack from this army. So I feel like for me, it's off and on. It's more guerrilla warfare, and sneak attacks. I win some and lose some, but I still feel like um, it's an encouraging way to look at it because it helps me not take it so personally to just think, well, you know, I lost that one, but maybe better tomorrow. So a third way of looking at the Buddha as a refuge is as awareness itself as the knowing faculty of the mind. There's a a statement somewhere. It's from one of the Mahayana traditions. I, I don't really understand it, but it says the essence of the thing is that the Buddha knows the Dharma. And what I take that to mean is that the knowing faculty of the mind knows the basic reality of what's going on. So if the Buddha is this knowing faculty, It's really a most mysterious capacity that we have to know what's going on. And that in itself is really can be an essential, is an essential part of the refuge. The part of the mind that knows what's happening is not caught up in what's going on. Just like images in a mirror don't exactly, don't affect the mirror itself. I found an instruction from one of the long retreats that I That to be extremely helpful. And that is when you're noticing what's going on, notice that it's something that's being known. Now, this may sound a little hard to grasp, but when like say you have a physical pain, one aspect of it is that it's a thing that is being known in that moment. Or if you're hearing a sound, the sound is being known. Right now, just the sensation of sitting in the chair, the feeling of the pressure that's being known. And if you can sort of tune into that, um, that you can see that, yes, that's one aspect of what's happening here. You know, it feels the way it feels and you like it or you don't like it. And it's being known. And by tuning into that, to me, it disengages the identification with it. It's sort of I don't know if anybody's driven a standard shift any time recently, but it's like putting the clutch in somehow on on the engagement with what's going on and the sense of struggle with it. And it it gives some space around it for me. There's a sense that I can tune into there that everything is already okay somehow. There's some part of the mind that is not involved in what's going on where it's okay. So I can be completely caught up in a whole snarl of thinking and reasoning and justifying and complaining and wondering what to do about something. And then eventually the suffering there reaches some threshold and I'm, I just drop it instantly. You know, it's like, oh, and it's OK. It's just all that is happening, but yet it's OK at the same time. So to me, that's a really essential part of the of the refuge on this path. And that's available anytime you can tune into it. So refuge in the Dharma is in the in the teachings themselves. It means really accepting the Buddha's fundamental analysis of the causes of suffering and aligning our intentions with his description of it. The essence of the teachings here is the Four Noble Truths. And I find a sense of refuge in each one of them at different times. The first noble truth, of course, is the truth of suffering, the unsatisfactory nature of reality. And I find this just just this bare statement so so helpful and refreshing that, yes, there is suffering. Um, It's the truth that there's this fundamental mismatch between the way things are and how we are conditioned biologically and socially to perceive them or to expect them to be. We are so conditioned to believe that painful things should not be happening. That when they are, we tend to blame ourselves and we tend or other people or we thrash around looking for a way to fix it and or for something else to hang on to. And all these responses really amount to tensing up against what's happening, which, of course, makes it worse. You know, we're 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 struggling with what's happening and the truth, painful it is as it is, is a, a refuge compared to looking in the wrong direction compared to making it worse. So. It also. Um, it can help to wake us up to the urgency of really investigating further what we're going to do, because we are going to die and we are going to get sick and we are going to get old and and these facts of life. The sooner we start to, to learn skillful ways to work with them, the better. And you do actually have to experience the pain itself of dealing with things unskillfully in order to learn. Um, I'm always wanting to find some way, you know, to just say, yeah, dukkha, right, check. You know, and (laughs) let's get on with the the fun part here. But uh, as many teachers, especially one teacher, keeps pointing out, dukkha is dukkha. You know, it doesn't mean that it's there's any way around it. It means it's dukkha. So when, you know, when you're sick, it's just not fun. And and there's a sense of a kind of communal, a kind of community, a compassion with other people that you can have when you just acknowledge that that's what's happening. Um, so the second noble truth is that the truth that craving or clinging causes suffering. And this is the great unintuitive brilliance of the Buddha is to have seen that that is the case. And a big part of working with the second noble truth is trying to understand what is really meant by suffering. Because if there's not a claim that you don't die or you don't get sick or you don't get old or you don't, you know, hurt yourself or lose those you love. It's it's understanding the extra suffering that you put on it through clinging and craving. So... Um, it's really that we think things should be a certain way in a world that's just a constantly changing kaleidoscope of tiny little moments of experience that are pleasant and unpleasant. And that really gets to the heart of the refuge here, which is starting to see the difference, which is so amazing once you really tune into it, between suffering versus something that's unpleasant or painful. It's it, Until you really see it for yourself, it's hard to believe what a difference, what, what that called suffering is that can be peeled off by just paying direct attention to pain or to on something that's unpleasant and how much of that is this cloud of thinking and worrying and wondering that goes on and how much of it is the physical tension around pain and, and so forth that goes on so it's just it's the, the, the refuge in this is the pointing to looking at what you're adding to it Our deep seated conditioning is to look outward for the cause of suffering and to to cling even harder to look for blame, figuring out defensiveness, planning, going to war, you know, or some kind of escaping into entertainment and drugs. Whereas once you get the hang of really looking at it and letting go, it's it's quite remarkable. Um. I've been looking a lot at at clinging recently. There's I I love to go on these long retreats, but I feel like I've reached a point where I I can't do that right now. I've I've bitten off a big bite of opening up and I need to work with integrating it. And when I go to the retreats now, they're not they're not good for me. I get too, I I just get too um, agitated and I, I really need to work more with integrating these into my life. But I love the retreat scene and I miss it. And uh, and it's so interesting to see that how I'm clinging to my own what used to be my spiritual practice. It's changed and I don't like it that it's changed. But it's just another example of something that, you know, was one way and now it's another way and I just need to move on. And I keep seeing my mind keep scheming and planning. Well, I'll go to that one. Well, I can maybe I can go to that one. And I just know, you know, let go. And every time I start planning it, it's painful. And every time I just let go of it, I can let go of it. And it just just let the just let the, the thoughts and the emotions flow through and uh, it's fine. So when I can do that, I'm reminded of the most essential refuge, which is the third noble truth, the truth of the cessation of suffering. I've been talking about that off and on quite a bit already, in fact, but um, we can really taste the freedom from clinging in any moment when we can just let go of the world of thoughts and concepts and dive into the simplicity of what's happening without any further interpretation. Just this morning, I was doing the dishes in my usual haze of background agendas of figuring out what I'm going to do and what else I might do and thinking and so forth. And I'm always just everything, wondering what everything means. What does this mean about me? What does this have to do about me? How can I protect myself from this little problem? How can I grab onto that little opportunity? I'm thinking and thinking. And then it came time to dry these big knives I have. And I have this They're a little mindfulness bell to me because once I dried it very mindfully. And so when I every time I pick up the knife, I suddenly, oh, I can dry the knife (laughs) and I just just drop all this thinking that I was completely wrapped up in. And it's like suddenly this exquisite pleasure of just being there, you know, feeling it, seeing it, seeing just just feeling the knife and slowly walking across the room, putting it away. And then back to thinking. (laughs) But, you know, uh, it's always, all those little, any little incident like that reminds me that it's possible at any moment to drop into that kind of clarity. Whenever we can touch into the simple connection with the real, with these bare qualities of what's happening, just the sensations of the breath, the sensations in the body, seeing thoughts and emotions as just passing clouds, then there's really no problem. The other, um, well, just one more story about this. I find that a thing that 's particularly helpful to me to get into that state and stay in it is something that 's n- not a pattern. My mind goes for patterns, and as soon as I start to recognize a pattern in what 's happening then it 's like it goes and it has to it completes the pattern and it and it 's off and running but anything that gets that's that gets me out of that so I was watching this wonderful DVD the other night of um, John Cage, you know who he is, this experimental composer, and there's a ballet guy who's my partner partners with him. And um and there's a wonderful D V D and he makes this music that is not any pattern that you would recognize. It's kind of random sounds and silence and he, he even programs it randomly with by throwing dice and so forth for how the music should work. So I was caught up in watching this and the dancers were making their moves and the music was all over the place and there was no, no nothing to it. And I was somehow I was just engaged in it visually and orally and and it got me into that zone where the mind just didn't know what to make of it. There was no concept to grab onto, There was no pattern to jump ahead with. So I was I was put into a, an interesting state watching that. And then when I got up to make a cup of tea, I stayed in that state and I didn't realize it. But I took it with me to the kitchen and, and, I, and I was just, you know, crunch, crunch bonk, you know, pick up the glass, bing, bonk, this, that. And it was just beautiful, you know, just floating through that bear. And then I kind of woke up and realized, oh, this is cool. And I started thinking about it and that was over. But anyway, just wonderful moments like that remind us of what it's like to be free of the mind imposing patterns on everything that's happening. The other aspect of um, of freedom from suffering that we can start to touch into is the quality of equanimity. And this is where the mind comes into a state of balance. It, it starts to happen gradually through our practice after we've seen enough of the pain of grabbing onto the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant. Gradually, the mind just learns not to do that so much and it comes into a state of balance and it's like like a sort of ballast in the mind or like one of those pushover toys. You know, I used to call them bozos where you hit it and there's sand in the bottom and it bounces back up. The mind just doesn't go um, very far. I had a wonderful Um, phase of this last summer when I was managing one of these retreats in New Mexico I think it was the presence of the monk who was teaching the retreat who was a delightful person I think he just somehow spread an umbrella of equanimity over the whole thing but all these things kept happening the cook came in screaming at me one day for I still think no reason and and this I had we had the All the retreatants had turned in their laundry. This was at a a remote place that was two hours away from the nearest town, and it was on all these four-wheel drive, deeply rutted roads to get out to this place. So we had elaborate preparations for doing laundry in the middle of the retreat. And all the retreatants had brought all their clothes and put them in the yurt in the middle of the retreat. And I had these plans that I was going to get up in the morning, take the laundry, drive out in this four-wheel drive car and do the laundry. And just as it was getting dark, this... Retreating comes up and thinks he's having a heart attack. <laughs> a manager's worst nightmare. And so, but I was just, uh, to my amazement, there was equanimity. I just, well, all right, forget the laundry. You know, it's dark. Okay, we'll just drive out of here anyway. <laughs> you know, and so got the guy in the car and and we drove out. You know, on the rutted roads with the headlights, and it all worked, and we managed to get into town, and he was okay. You know, got him to the hospital, but. And you know, then I was gonna—I was making these plans. Well, I'll go back and get the laundry in the morning. But then he thought he was okay in the morning. But we were having breakfast, and then he started again to have heart attack symptoms. And so, okay, never mind the laundry. You know, the people can do without the laundry. And it just—it went on. It's unfolded. And then there was another guy the next day who had to come in. It went on and on and on. But I was just okay through the whole thing somehow. It was just to me the power of equanimity, which I—I really think it had something to do with the being in the presence of this wonderful teacher for that time. But I was miraculously able to just not. OK, you know, not hang on to any plans, not worry, not just do what needed to be done. So, you know, there's more and more moments of that as we go along. And the wonderful thing about it is that once you've seen it, you you really can't tell yourself that it's the fault of the outside world again. I mean, you can, you know, I do, but you, you 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 start to learn not to believe that so much because you, you've seen that you can go through things and that it depends more on your own internal state of balance than it does on what's really happening and once you get the flavor of that then you 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 can stop looking outside and and really take refuge in your own state of mind and really work on that because that's what's workable and that leads to the fourth noble truth that there is a path to the cessation of suffering and the the refuge that I find here is this this essential lawfulness of the Dharma. It's it's a law like a law of nature. You know, if you throw a ball up, it hits the ground. And there are there are laws that exact in the way this works, that it, if you pay attention in this bare attention sort of way, your mind will grok impermanence. You know, it will see that things are changing so fast and so rapidly that there is no point in hanging on and you don't. It's not an intellectual figuring out. It's a seeing it at a deep level the same way that you see. I see a person there. I see a person there. You know, if you if you look more closely, you eventually it sees impermanence and it sees that in a way that it stops hanging on. You don't have to instruct it to do that. So there's there's this kind of lawfulness to the process. The path to purification, you know, runs through, you, it begins with the view, you, 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 you preliminarily accept the view that this, the first three noble truths sound reasonable, they're worth investigating, and then that gives rise to the intention to, to look further into practice and to act wisely in the world and to take up the meditation practice and then the more you do that, the more that confirms the view and it's this little engine that automatically leads you to more and more equanimity. So there's nothing you can do directly to make insights arise. But the more you just stay steady with bare attention, it, 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 the mind sees it and it stops clinging to what is seen as unsatisfying and insubstantial. Another aspect of this lawfulness that I find to be a source of refuge is the teaching on karma. And the important point about karma is that... Um, It's the motive or the intention behind an action that is the measure of it, not its outcome. We can't control the outcome due to the complexity of conditions, but we can purify our motivations. And acting from wholesome motives leads to more ease and less suffering, regardless of the details of how things turn out and vice versa. If you're acting from unwholesome motives, it's going to be stressful, even if it turns out all right. You know, it's not worth the stress sometimes. So I find that looking at this leads to um, greater ease. And if I'm not engaging in a situation in an easeful way, then I must be holding on to a need for a certain outcome. Or maybe my intentions are otherwise somehow unwholesome. So, for example, there's a situation that I've gotten involved with where I'm helping a group do something that's it's a worthwhile project, but it's a fairly long shot, you know, whether it's going to work. And I found that I kept getting angry at the meetings and that there was this the sense of anger. And, and you know, this was not very much appreciated, <laughs> as pointed out to me. And I started to look at why this was. And I started investigating my motives and helping them. And I realized that this angry undertone, I, I had a feeling that I, when I started looking at what am I doing in this meeting, am I helping them? And I said, no, my real motive is that I want to straighten them out somehow, you know, and I want to and I want to. It's like I want to punish their naivete you know that they don't understand what a big bad world it is out there and they're they're kind of stupid for having these good ideas these naive ideas that this project is going to work and and I and I really once I looked at what I was saying I realized that it was really my own fear you know a fear that that actually I was me feeling responsible for making it work you know, and I wasn't sure that it was going to work. And I didn't have I was afraid of being in an uncertain situation where it might not work and, and fear of failure and, and excessively personal self self-righteous responsibility for the whole thing. When really all I was being asked to do was just contribute my opinion here and there, and you know, do some accounting and so forth. And so it was quite a challenge for me to instill is to open up to their free flowing, optimistic, boundless faith that this is going to work. And and but I can see now that the point is that we can have fun together trying it, you know, and there's no harm in trying. And if I have a helpful attitude, then it's fun and it's a wholesome project. There's absolutely no harm in it whatsoever, you know, or I can have this angry, cynical attitude. And then, you know, that's only likely to not make it work. So anyway. Um I've also found that having the intention of trying to stay with the feeling of ease. So if I can get myself where I feel like I'm in a state of ease and then the intention is to stay with it, it sort of tunes me into a subtle current. It's like wisdom has this ability to navigate a kind of invisible landscape of possibilities and other people's feelings and so forth. And and um, when I as I become more sensitive to what's happening, then it really bounces out at me when I lose my sense of ease. So, for example, the coordinator of this program where I tutor asked for a volunteer for something, and I was just reading the emails, and here comes this request for volunteering. And I noticed an immediate reaction that, OK, you know, I guess I'll do it. And, well, wait a minute, you know, this, this is a resentful, burdened sense of duty and self-importance that I have to do this as if no one else can do it. And so, but since I was... Intending to track this, I noticed that right away and I just thought, OK, you know, although I could do it and it might be a good thing to do. I'm not going to do it out of that motivation because doing it out of that motivation then sets me up to resent that. You know, I'm carrying around. Oh, there's that, you know, and I'm and I had to do it because no one else could do it. You know, and, and carrying that carrying that with it every time I did that little task was just not going to set it up right. So I didn't respond and I waited a couple of days. And then one day I happened. She sent out a second request. And and at that time, I just I just felt a whole different thing. It was like a wave of well I can do that. You know, I'm happy to do that. And so out of the way out of that positive wave of intention, I just said, yeah, I, sure, I can do that. And now ha- so I have volunteered to do it and I am doing it. And when I do it, there's no feeling of resentment. You know, because I even though I might be tired at the moment, I remember that it's not the case that it was a burden or that, you know, I have to. I just did it out of this wholesome motivation. So the final refuge is the refuge in Sangha. See how we're doing here. (laughs) Um, The traditional meaning. Oh, thanks. The traditional meaning of that is of the definition of sangha is those who have practiced to some degree of awakening, so the 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 liberated sangha those who have really tasted the fruits of liberation um, The amazing thing is that I'm you know pretty convinced that there are such people walking around and you know that you know some people here, some people that I know on retreat there's some wonderful teachers that come here and you know the some some of them are ordained, some of them are not. And it's just delightful to be living in a time and a place where there are so many such people that float through our lives that we can actually associate with and meet. It's really inspiring to me the idea of the lineage from the Buddha on down. There's a wonderful saying from Zen, I think, that the Dharma has been handed down warm hand to warm hand. which means You know, one living person to another since the Buddha to down to our teacher's. And have passed this on. Um, I, my, my first whiff that there was something to Eastern philosophy was in high school when I was reading Chinese, the, the Tang poets of China who lived 1,300 years ago. And I'm still, I still love that poetic tradition. And it's so wonderful to me to feel that in some ways I, have more, I feel more connection with those people than I do with some of our cultural icons of, of today. You know, I just feel this, this thread of connection with the people who've been doing this practice in many countries and many cultures. And when I read their poems, I feel like, oh, you know, I understand what they're talking about when they talk about sitting and they talk about, you know, just, you know, they like they sat all last night. And I know what that means, you know, it's so wonderful. So the thing, it's really the sangha that, that got me sort of out of the bookstore and, and into the meditation hall a few years ago because I when I remember when I first... The first thing I did was I went up to a day long with Jack Cornfield, and I I had done nothing but read the books, you know, and otherwise I knew mostly engineers and, you know, people who were not at all interested in this stuff. And and I just walking in there and there's Jack and he's got such a different energy and such a gentle person and so soft. And I would just never seen anybody like that. And I thought, well, there's something really different here. And I, I, I thought, well, OK, these people are different. They are the way the books talk about. And then when I came to this center, I remember the first night I came, um, Gil was giving a talk and it was so remarkable to me that he would stop frequently in the talk and just sit there and kind of think of what to say next. And, you know, and he'd say something else. And I, I, there was just a, such a simplicity and such an unself consciousness and such a reality about the way he did that, that I really thought I'd found another special person in my head. Um, Really, I think the most important teaching comes from being around awake people and just having them be the way they are and responding, engaging with the world the way they do. You get some kind of energetic imprint from being around them that somehow sets a new standard in your own memory for what's possible. This this monk that I was on retreat with last summer that I was talking about, this guy was his name is Sayadaw Vivekananda and he's a German, but he studied in Burma for many years. And now he has a retreat center of his own in lumbini, which is the birthplace of the Buddha. He was radiantly joyful open hearted glowing, delightful person to be with and I, It was such a privilege to be managing the retreat because I got to have lunch with him every day and just talk with him. you know the first day we came there he 'd been hiking at this wilderness place in his sandals you know, and when we were driving in on his four wheel drive, the first thing we saw we still had a, two or three miles to go. He's out there waiting for us all afternoon so he can greet us. when we, He'd been there a few days before we got there. So we came up and he's, hello, hello, hello. And he comes running over and, it's, and he's been out hiking. I don't, he was just a wonderful person. So just being around that energy is, is delightful. And for another example, in a, kind of, a different kind of wonderful energy. I was here. There was a meeting here about a month ago of some nuns who are trying. I don't know if any of you were there, but there's a group of Theravada nuns who were trying to find a place to settle in the West Coast here. And I didn't go to the meeting, unfortunately, but fortunately, I went to pick up a friend who had been at the meeting. And so And the meeting ran long, so I got to be about 15 minutes of it. And I walked in and there was just such a stillness and it was just a warm, still, spacious, sweet space and they were they were talking and I got to listen to them talk and unfortunately what I had planned to do with this friend was go to a, a kind of a rock concert <laughs> which I hadn't been to for years but I thought well this would be fun so I was gonna do that. So and it was it was kinda jarring to come from the stillness of this space and then go to this the Fox Theater over there is kind of a bar-like place, a scene I hadn't been in for years. And all evening I was sort of, wait a minute, <laughs> where do I want to be, here or there? But uh, anyway, it was it's just delightful to be around these people. Um, so the other aspect of refuge in the Sangha is more local and, and grounded here, just seeing people that we know change. You know, I've been doing this since 1995, and some of my friends back then, started with me. And, you know, it's just remarkable to see the change in people and how people have calmed down and, you know, changed their lives in dramatic ways just over the years that I've known them. It really brings it down to Earth that it's possible for people that we know to to change so much. So the broadest meaning of the Sangha is just a community of fellow travelers, people with shared orientation. It's such a joy to have people who have the same vocabulary for talking about their problems and talking about what's going on, how to work through challenges. One thing um, related to refuge in the Sangha, I found it difficult to do the loving kindness practice at first. It was hard for me to do it. And a teacher suggested that I practice receiving metta and compassion. So I would just Imagine, bring to mind these people like the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh or some people I only know from photographs like Suzuki Roshi or there's this wonderful Tibetan teacher, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, who has this wonderful face. And I would picture those people sending metta. You know, sometimes to me or sometimes to the difficult people that I couldn't send metta to. Well, okay, you know, let's have the Dalai Lama take care of them and I'll just watch. Well, and it was a wonderful practice of opening up to this refuge that there are these great beings in the world. And then gradually, as we learn to as I learned and you can learn to do metta, you know, it, it extends the sangha really eventually to all beings that you can that you can feel the common humanity with. So those are my thoughts on refuge along the way. I hope that you all find some warmth here in the winter, the light of awareness, the warmth of the Sangha. It's possible to find peace within any moment. Thank you.